economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And we got to say Dr. Jacobson Oh, now. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Uh, yes, Jacobson uh, He successfully defended yesterday, so now you can edit your intro notes there. Congratulations. Maybe that's a quick little clap here. Very good. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, Peter, take it away. Thanks, Russ, for that. Well, I just want to say we're excited to have today with us Larry Reed. Larry Reed is sort of a legend in the circles that I run in. You know, I'm interested in a school fellow called Austrian Economics. And, you know, everyone who knows anything about Austrian Economics knows Larry Reed. Larry Reed is the president emeritus for the Foundation for Economic Education, has had a long storied career, but I, I want to save some of that for part of his introduction and what he's done. And so, Larry, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We'll just start off with the, the general and get a little bit more into the specifics as we go. Okay. Thanks, Peter. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you so much. Thanks also to Russ, Nate, uh, and Justin. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania 67 years ago in a little town called Beaver Falls. Grew up there, moved to Michigan to take my first real job as a professor of economics at Northwood University in 1977. Taught there for seven years, then ran a small free market think tank in Idaho for the better part of three years, moved back to Michigan to become the founding president of a uh, Michigan-focused think tank called the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, Mm -hmm. served in that capacity for 21 years, and then uh, took the position of president of FEE, an organization I'd had a long association with going back to the 1960s. I took that position in 2008 and served as president for almost 11 years. And now for about a year and a half, I've been president emeritus and Humphreys Family Senior Fellow and Ron Manners Global Ambassador for Liberty. It's, <laughs> I know a lot, <laughs> but uh, they would appreciate it when I mention that. So, uh, so there we have it. Larry, could you could you share your faith tradition through the years? Has, has it changed or where yet? Uh, how has that evolved over time? It certainly has changed. I was raised in actually a number of churches for a time. My mother was sort of the driver of that for a time. She made sure that we all went to a Pentecostal church. And for a time, we went to a Presbyterian church and finally settled in the Church of the Nazarene. And then my faith sort of simmered on the back burner for a while as I went through college. Uh, I, I never relinquished it in any way, but it really didn't deepen in any profound way until I would say when I met the man who became my best friend and I was best man in his wedding and he became senior vice president at the Mackinac Center. So I worked closely with him before his uh, tragic death in a plane crash. His name was Joe Overton. And he was a a wonderful Christian man. He walked the talk, as they say, and he could light up a room just by being there and uh, a man of sterling character. And that just so greatly impressed me in so many ways. And so I sort of renewed my faith 
And since then, I have been a, a Presbyterian again, and a Reformed Presbyterian, not a, a United Presbyterian. So that's where I am. Well, one of the reasons that we ask is today, and it doesn't have to, we don't have to immediately jump into it, but one of the inspirations for having you on was Russ and I both saw at the Free Market Forum, your presentation and kind of your Q&A on your new book was Jesus a Socialist. And do you want to give us a quick answer to that? Yes, no, otherwise, so what, what should we expect here? <laughs> yeah, the quick answer is no. <laughs> he was not a socialist, not in any way sympathetic to the ethics or the economics or any aspect uh, of socialism, whatever. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that more in the discussion, but uh, that is a definitive no. <laughs> so do you think part of your reason for writing this was kind of your, your twin interest of economics on one hand, which you, it's, you have a very storied career of, I mean, going back to, to Northwood, it sounds like, and probably even before, and then also your Christianity, which you've had over your lifetime. Was that sort of the passion behind this writing? Yeah, I think you're right. Those, those two factors, but also a third, my love of history. And so uh, the history of the period of time uh, when Jesus was among us uh, is of keen interest to me. So all of that combined, and this is not a topic that's, that's new to me. I remember writing a paper for a class as an undergraduate entitled, God is not a socialist. And so some of the arguments I, I rustled up for that uh, short essay sort of percolated in my mind for decades thereafter and ultimately became uh, part of this most recent book. Larry, how would you describe socialism for our listeners? Good question, uh, Russ, because, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, you might come up with all kinds of definitions. Even socialists don't agree with themselves, it seems, <laughs> these days. Uh, at one time, everybody thought of it as uh, government ownership of the means of production. And then wherever that seemed to be tried, it was proven to be a flop and a joke and a tragedy. And so a lot of social socialists then said, well, we didn't really mean that. Uh, we mean something more akin to a welfare state where government doesn't necessarily own the means of production, but it directs them. It tells private producers a lot about what they can do, what they can sell it for, who they can sell it to, what they can earn, and so forth, and will use the government to redistribute wealth. However you define it, it has various gradations, I guess, and variants. The one word that I think best describes socialism, that certainly differentiates it uh, from, say, capitalism, which is commonly regarded as its opposite. The one word that differentiates it is force. Socialism is not a, a list of, of suggestions. It isn't a, a friendly request. It is a forcible uh, program for the redistribution of wealth or the government direction of an economy or the government ownership or control of property. It all comes down to force. I like to say that if it's voluntary, it's not socialism. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to describe it. And that's certainly picked up from listening to people like you over the years and, and other people that that's where I've kind of honed in on in my classroom as well to think yeah. to really emphasize the voluntary nature of the market and the force involved with government or political allocation. So yeah, we, if somebody says, oh, no, it's not that it's just sharing and caring and helping people, but you can do that. <laughs> and there's more of it under capitalism than there is under socialism. <laughs> So, so then uh, that leads me into my next question, which is if socialism is force and we, we can kind of come to that agreement, why is it that people so often, because this isn't a new argument that Jesus is a socialist, 
why is it so often, you know, throughout the decades, we've heard this argument, Jesus was a socialist, you know, they were saying it when the Soviet Union was around, they're saying it today. Yeah, a lot of reasons for that, Peter. One is that some people mistakenly associate socialism with helping the poor. And since Jesus spoke about that, they think, oh, well, then he must have been sympathetic to socialism in some way. But of course, he never recommended helping the poor by the means that socialists in, in real life use, which is the, uh, the force of government. He wanted you to do that of your own free will and of your own resources. And that was a kind of test to Jesus of what was really in your heart. I mean, if he came back today and, and asked a group of us, what did you do for the poor? I don't think he would be impressed if your answer was, well, we voted for politicians who said they'd take care of it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I know you participated in one of the chapters of a book that was real influential for me that the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics put out for the least of these, A Biblical yes. Answer to Poverty. And I kind of reviewed that prior to this too. And, and uh, your chapter was great there on just explaining to people the idea of how the poor are, are actually helped through voluntary means, or at least it's, it's, it's a very good alternative and, and in many cases can be better. Yeah, I don't think socialism has ever done much for the poor other than uh, give them lots of company. <laughs> that's, in fact, that's the quote. Yeah, I, I read that quote. I'm so glad you said that. Justin, you got a question? Yeah, I had a question for, for Larry. So I like the answer that this book gives, which is that Jesus, of course, wasn't a socialist. But it seems to me often that the people who are making the argument that Jesus was a socialist, they often aren't Christians themselves, it seems like to me. It seems like this argument you hear a lot, you know, as you were saying earlier, you know, from, you know, in the era of the Soviet Union, you had people who were, you know, avowed communists making this argument. And then, you know, when they make that argument and you reply, oh, so are you a Christian? And they say, well, no, but you are. So this argument should work on you, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, maybe that's just my, I mean, I, of course, went to Berkeley and so was educated by communists. Um, so maybe that's just a part of, uh, you know, my background. But I was wondering if, if that's been an experience with you, too. Uh, yeah. You know, Justin, you must be a reader of the Babylon Bee, because only in the last, <laughs> only in the last week there was an article and the headline was something like, man who believes nothing in Bible cites Bible to prove Jesus was a socialist. Or something like that. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. And I really think this is another reason to combine this response with what I said in response to Peter's last question, that a lot of people are misinformed about what the Bible says and what Jesus said in particular, because they really haven't spent much time reading, say, the New Testament, the words of Jesus themselves. They, they think they know because somebody told them that that was the case, but they really haven't studied it and, and read it themselves. Well, in preparation for this most recent book, I read the Bible, New Testament twice again, and the Old Testament once again. I don't know how many times I've read the entire Bible, but several. And I looked for anything I could find that would even by hint suggest that Jesus would be sympathetic to forcible redistribution or the concentration of political power. I wanted to find something that would have him say, no, the politicians should do that, not you. But of course, there's nothing like that in the New Testament. So a, a lot of people really need to read the Bible before they actually make pronouncements about what it says. What are some of the 
Bible verses that you think stand out the strongest in terms of a support for freedom, I guess, if it's not an explicit statement that the other way? Well, here are two from the Old Testament that Jesus said he came to uphold, and they are from the Ten Commandments. Uh, the eighth says, thou shalt not steal. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless the other guy has more than you do, or <laughs> thou shalt not steal unless you're just absolutely certain you can spend it better than the guy that earned it. Or thou shalt not steal, but it's okay to hire a politician to do it on your behalf. <laughs> um, and then two commandments later, the 10th says thou shalt not covet. In other words, if it's not yours, keep your fingers off of it. But then uh, the, in the words of Jesus, I think one of my favorites would be from the book of Luke. Luke 12, uh, 13 through 15. A man approaches Jesus and says, Master, speak to my brother that he divideth the inheritance with me. In other words, hey, I don't think I got a fair shake. I, he got more than me. Can you do something about that? Maybe use your power to influence things and redistribute the wealth a bit differently in my direction. Jesus did not reply anything like, oh, yeah, well, you should definitely get something more equal or I'll look into that. No, he immediately rebuked the man for his envy. He said, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? which is something you'll never hear a socialist say because they're judging and dividing us all the time. And then he, after presumably a pause, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's wealth does not consist of the abundance that he possesses. So those are just three of, of many passages that I see as reinforcing Jesus's ethics of volunteerism, responsibility, private property, even supply and demand. There's a parable which seems to endorse the workings of the supply of supply and demand. Well, Larry, and I, I know you addressed it in the book. And so if you don't want to get too far into it to save something for the listeners to read, but what if someone says to you, but it render unto Caesar, Larry, that's what Jesus said is you just give to Caesar what Caesar's. And if Caesar's a socialist, well, then, you know, that that's the breaks. <laughs> yeah. You hear this a lot. Well, keep in mind, he doesn't say render unto Caesar anything that he wants, just because he says he wants it, no matter what he wants to do with it, and no matter how he intends to raise it even if he's going to kill you to get it. I mean, <laughs> it, uh, some people take that passage and interpret it into some kind of sweeping endorsement of anything Caesar wants to take. What if he wants to take it all? And what if he wants to kill you in the process? Of course, uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. This was a very clever response on his part to some Pharisees who were trying to trick him. They wanted to get him to say something that they could run back to the Romans with and say, ah, He's, he's sanctioning tax evasion. He needs to be arrested. <laughs> so what Jesus said was, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. In other words, maybe, you know, is it Caesar's? Maybe some of it is. Maybe all of it is. Maybe none of it is. He left that question for us to decide. In fact, you can interpret what he said as a kind of endorsement of private property. If it is Caesar's, if it properly belongs to him, well then, mm. and if he wants it, give it to him. But he didn't say you know, it does belong to him, whatever he says. So he was a lot more clever in his response to the Pharisees than a lot of socialists are in their interpretation of what he said. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that's that verse is used as a blank check a lot to justify a lot of things. But, you know, <laughs> I always say to people that, well, there has to be some in between, between, you know, don't render anything to Caesar at all, which obviously Jesus isn't saying, and the other side of things, which is, you know, St. Paul being lowered in a basket over the city walls against the wishes of Caesar. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know, certainly there's uh, some room for some Christian disobedience of unjust things. 
And I oh, think yeah. that can go to have taxes this, as well. You know, if we didn't have disobedience, we wouldn't have had Jesus. I That's mean, right. <laughs> remember the order from Pharaoh to kill the uh, all the infant boys. Absolutely. I mean, thank goodness there were people who said, I'm not going to abide by that. Absolutely. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our first break. When we come back, I'm going to pose a question on social justice. You have a chapter here on Jesus, the redistributionalist and Jesus, the social justice warrior. And excited to get your comments on those since that's kind of a hot topic of the day. So we'll be back in just 30 seconds. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. All right, welcome back. So we left from the break on social justice warrior question mark. Was Jesus an activist in this regard, or, and maybe we'll get into the normative of should we be just judging by what the Bible says. So what is that chapter all about, Larry? What do you got to say? Well, social justice is often perverted into claims, illegitimate claims of some people upon the rights or property of other people. It's a very nebulous concept, but I like something that I think either economist Walter Williams or economist Thomas Sowell, one of those two guys said, he said, my idea of social justice is if it's mine, I get to keep it. If it's yours, you get to keep it or something like that. <laughs> and and uh, the, whoever said that, it was the other one who said we should respond to social justice warriors with the question, what portion of what belongs to me do you think is your fair share? <laughs> mm-hmm. So those that question would then cause a social justice warrior, hopefully, to begin thinking in terms of you know, what is it that I really want? If it's just fairness, if it's just honesty, if it's, you know, honest dealings, sanctity of contract, keeping your word, being friendly, well, that's all it is. Uh, Yeah, we should all be practitioners of those things. Jesus certainly advocated for things like honesty, responsibility, compassion, and so forth. But if by social justice, you mean, oh, well, you've got more stuff than I do, and I, I want to stake a claim on that. I want you to pay for my college. I want you to give me a, a guaranteed annual monthly income. Or, you know, I, I mean, the, once you start down that track, the list is potentially endless of claims that somebody may think they're, in, they're entitled to stake upon other people. Jesus never advocated that. He certainly didn't advocate the use of political force to fulfill the objectives that a lot of social justice warriors today say they're in favor of. He never once said anything like, oh, yeah, let the politicians take from some and give to others. Rob Peter to pay Paul. Never said that. So I guess it comes down to what do you mean by social justice? A lot of it is nothing more than a fancy way to say, I'd I'd like to take what doesn't belong to me. Yeah. I heard another commentator once say, question back, what tax rate do you think it should be? And most yeah. of the time people when are on the increased taxes, they don't even know what the tax rates are. Yeah. And so, you know, just 70% sound good. And I, oh, no, not that high. You know, yeah. they really don't <laughs> have it thought through that. It's just left in this nebulous realm. And I, I think that's a great comment. 
So circling back to maybe some more righteous defiance of, of unjust laws here. Larry, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your time with the Polish undergrounds, the anti-communist undergrounds in, in 1986. And uh, my, my understanding is you were detained by, by border police at this time. Yes, it was a remarkable experience that I still talk about to, the, uh, to this day. I had already, by 1986, done some work with underground movements in several countries, including uh, Nicaragua and Ukraine, and not yet Mozambique, that came later, but a Polish emigre, actually he had been expelled for being active in a pro-freedom movement in his native Poland, heard one of my speeches about Nicaragua. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Mr. Reed, you, you've got to do in Poland what you did in Nicaragua and I can make arrangements to get you in. And so one thing led to another and it turned out that the man in charge of my visit, my two weeks inside Poland with the underground activists at that time. This was, was when Poland was still governed by uh, the Communist Party, 1986. The man who was my on-the-ground escort was Jan Rokita, who later became an, an elected member of parliament, and a few years back became that close to being prime minister of Poland. But he was a great freedom advocate, still living, now retired from parliament. But during that two-week time, he arranged for me to spend every night at a different home. We were trying to stay a step ahead of the uh, government and meeting with people who were active in some way or another in the resistance against the communist dictatorship, including underground printers, underground pastors, uh, you name it. In fact, one of the things I came away from was the recognition that the Polish underground was so extensive that just about any aspect of life that had a public and above ground legal aspect also had its private underground and illegal aspect. There was a black market in it. That's why uh, by early 1989, the communist dictator, General Jaruzelski, said he shocked the world by saying, we're going to have to have free elections. Nobody's paying attention to us anymore. <laughs> and I learned that so well the evening that a group of underground printers hosted a party for me and they wanted to impress me with how much they had been printing and they brought out stacks of samples of uh, many works from the west great works of freedom by hayek and mises and uh, friedman and so forth translated illegally into polish printed illegally and distributed and i asked them at one point where do you guys get all the paper to print this stuff because the government owns all the printing presses and one of them said oh we get it from two places. One, we steal it from communists. And the other is we smuggle it in from the West. And I said, steal it from communists. What do you mean by that? And he said, well, in the factories where the government prints its publications, increasingly, a lot of the workers there are on our side. And when the government isn't looking, <laughs> he said, they smuggle the paper out to us. And he said, sometimes when the coast is clear, they print our stuff on the government's own printing press. <laughs> so I was blown away by that. And they gave me an assignment. In fact, they said, well, because I asked them, how can I help you guys when I get back out and back home to the U.S.? They said, we want to publish Milton Friedman's Free to Choose in Polish and distribute it. If we got $5,000 from somewhere, we could print 5,000 copies. And we, if you can raise that for us, we can tell you who to get it to in our network in Paris. They'll get it to us. 
And so I did. I got it all from one donation from a good friend who was a hardcore anti-communist. He was always of the view that, hey, you're fighting the communists. You know, how do I make out the check? <laughs> and, <laughs> and about two years later, I got my own copy signed by one of the leading activists in the Polish underground of Milton Friedman's Freedom Shoes. And I was able to show it to, to Milton as well. And this violates every copyright law in the book. And he, he didn't care. He just laughed and said it. That was great. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a very important visit because it taught me just how far oppressed people will go when they have convictions of, of freedom uh, against tyranny. So, Larry, you made me think of a this is kind of a vision, longer term vision that I've had for um, us as an institute, but to have kind of grassroots efforts in places where there's not a lot of economic freedom. So, they're not necessarily under a communist regime, but if we take the economic freedom list and take all the least free countries to set up kind of help initiate grassroots efforts in places like that to hopefully ultimately lead to institutions that are more freedom friendly over the long haul. And I was just curious if you know of any places that have things like that going on, kind of an underground in that respect or not? Yes, well, I think it's certainly a worthy goal to try to be of assistance to people who are on the inside, living under oppression and trying to do something about it. Uh, they need enc encouragement. And every country in the world where there is oppression, including North Korea, has its own underground resistance movement. Some of them are small and, and very deeply underground, difficult to contact because of the nature of the regime. But others, it's, it's more easy to make connection and to assist. Venezuela is a good example. In fact, a year and a half ago, we were able at FEE to get a professor out of Venezuela and to come to our conference so we could give him an award. And he's back in Caracas and teaching Austrian economics. Wow. Now, I know he's watching his back all the time, but, um, you know, somebody like that, just let me know and I'd be happy to put you in touch. Those folks that are doing such courageous things on the front lines of freedom, they need help, they need encouragement, and I'd be happy to make connections for you. Great, great. Uh, Justin, you know, we're headed into the Christmas season here, and there's, I know you talked a little bit about rendering into unto Caesar what Caesar's, and maybe some kind of justified defiance of Caesar. So I was wondering if you had, first of all, any thoughts about Caesar making decrees about what we can and can't do for Christmas or the holidays. <laughs> and secondly, just about the ways Christmas can be conceptualized for Christians um, and the way it might be even misconceptualized in, in wider in secular society. Ah, okay, two good questions. Well, I, I'm a great skeptic of, uh, of lockdowns. I think the more evidence that seems to come out, the more it's apparent that lockdowns do more harm than good. And that maybe the best approach to dealing with this virus is to go out of our way to protect the most vulnerable, but otherwise leave the less vulnerable and the very young to freedom. You know, we take risks every day of the week, all the time, pandemic or no pandemic. And the last thing I think we ever want to do is to set dangerous precedents that allow the government on good reasons or even flimsy reasons to limit our liberties. Because the problem is the government never does it once and then uh, retreats and you're back to where you were before. There's the ratchet effect that the economist Bob 
Higgs uh, has written about. And so the danger is the government always oversteps its bounds. It goes too far and then it never goes back to, uh, never puts everything back in the bottle. So I'm just very skeptical and I think people ought to probably do more to push back and, and to resist. Now, as to, the, uh, uh, as to Christmas and its meaning, G.K. Chesterton was one uh, of many of the uh, favorite people of mine in history who talked about how the world is so awesome and we don't recognize that. And what a great time of the year to put politics aside for the moment. It's not everything. And just allow yourself to be awestruck by the Christmas message and the world that God has given us. It is just mind-blowing. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that socialists don't, they never really get awed. They never look around and say, wow, look at all these wonderful things that people (laughs) created just for me. Thank you. (laughs) No, they're always angry and nasty, and, and it's hard for them to find something positive in the world. Well, we as Christians and lovers of liberty, I think, should remind everybody that this is the perfect time of year uh, to be awed by the story of uh, the birth of Jesus and our redemption through uh, his sacrifice, as well as the incredible attributes of creation that are just nonstop awesome. So uh, too many people don't stop and, and smell the coffee and recognize how fortunate they are in so many ways. Now's the time to do that. Do you think the COVID lockdowns that we have done give opportunities for ultimately getting people educated more towards freedom or they're gonna see that as us backsliding? Where do you think we are? Are we making progress on this stuff in, in general and has COVID contributed to that or not? Well, time will tell. If you ask me that in a year or two, I'll have a clearer answer for you, but that's my hope. I hope that we'll look back in the not too distant future and realize the government overstepped its bounds, that while it often says it's allowing the science to govern its thinking, it didn't do that in so many ways uh, in this crisis. I hope it causes people to look back and say, wow, you know, freedom really is precious. And we got a little taste of what it's like to have so much less of it. I don't want that to happen again. Let's guard against it. Let's uh, keep the government on a short, shorter leash. That's my hope. And I think we will have opportunities to drive that point home. Uh, they'll just be more clear probably a year or more from now. Well, Larry, I'll take that as a commitment to come back in the podcast on a year. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, yeah, well, we, We've got it penciled in already. I agree with what you said about bringing up Higgs ratchet effect. I think that's one of the, the great insights on uh, recent, you know, economic historical analysis with with political economy in mind. What's fascinating to me is this isn't hidden right now, that there are politicians and, you know, lobbyists outright saying, oh, things what can't go back to normal. There yeah. is not a new normal. That, it, whereas in the ratchet effect, I usually think of this as more of like a, a sort of a sneaky thing that's done. It seems very in your face this time that, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we can't return to normal. We're going to have command and control over a lot more aspects of your life than we ever did before on a permanent basis now. So, you know, I, but I, I agree with you that there, there's something to be optimistic, you know, apart from politics, which is the world around us. You know, I walk into the office, I flip the light and the lights actually turn on. That's an yeah. amazing thing. Yeah, um, it really is. It really is. We don't uh, take enough time to appreciate the blessings that we have around us. And uh, socialists, of course, spend too much time counting the other guy's blessings. I think we would all do better to uh, spend more time counter, counting our own. 
I'm also hoping there's going to be a resurgence of, of respect for federalism. And I see that, you know, we've got California and New York shutting down. And, and I think Trump, of all of his shortcomings, really did try to push that down to the state level to make those decisions rather than keeping it up and getting criticized by Democrats on, you know, not having a national mask mandate. But I hope there, there can be a, a newfound respect that it's okay for California to be California and Kansas to be Kansas. And we don't have to have these one size fits all dictates coming from Washington, D.C. And I, I don't know, do you think this will help people recognize federalism? Do you think people even really get that anymore? Or are we all just so awash with it's into office and now our life looks this way? Well, that's a great observation, Russ. And I share your desire to use this opportunity to drive that home so that people will better understand it. We've lost a lot of understanding of and respect for the pillars of constitutional government that our founders blessed us with. And lots of Americans don't understand the importance of federalism. They don't understand it as part of the, an integral part of the separation of powers, the dispersion of concentrated power. Those are the kinds of things that help preserve your liberty. When you homogenize an entire nation with top-down mandates and allow for little in the way of diversity of, of viewpoints and policies, then you don't get that laboratory or 50 laboratories where you can better determine what makes sense and what doesn't. Surely the same policies of California and New Jersey or New York don't have equal applicability to say Montana or Kansas or even Michigan. So I hope we don't forget that important point. It's part of our constitutional arrangement. It keeps us free along with other institutional and philosophical commitments. But time will tell. Let's certainly use the opportunity to drive that point home. Yeah, I love your diversity comment. Like we have that on our, our side. Like we're, we're allowing diversity. We embrace diversity through free markets. That, that might be a, a mantra we could, we could carry to the masses. So. Yeah, you can take it to the larger picture too. And that is that under capitalism, freedom and free markets, you can practice socialism if you want, as long as you find people willing to join your cause. You can run around the neighborhood and rustle up people and say, hey, let's all put our earnings into a common pot and we'll distribute it equally to everybody. <laughs> and if they all say, yes, let's do that. Well, go ahead. We don't, we, have, we don't have a law against that. But under socialism, of course, it's very hard for you to practice capitalism. You can't say yeah. to the government, oh, no, thanks. I'd like to be on my own. <laughs> no, then uh, you're headed for the, for the gulag. Yeah, and I think the empirical evidence is on our side once again for those voluntary communes that have evolved since the hippie era. I believe none have actually succeeded long term. No, they never. Unless they get to a critical side. They never so. do. They never do. It. 99.9% of socialists who say they like those ideas never actually try to practice them, them themselves. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to end. Any last words here from, from anybody? I just want to say thank you, Larry, so much for coming on the show. Uh, we were honored to have you, uh, a great champion of Liberty on, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Russ. Thanks, Nate and Justin. I really appreciate it. And uh, shoot me the link when it's ready and I'll post it. All right. Sounds, Sounds great. good. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. We'd like to thank you all for listening. If you're so inclined to find those five stars, if you like what you heard, that helps other people find our Faith and Economics podcast. And we appreciate you all listening. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> Thanks.